Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Welcome back to the screening room, checking out the new releases in theaters and on home video. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from madwolf.com. And the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of Marcus Crosswoods Theater. With 70-foot wide ultra screen featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners. That big screen will come in handy for the first movie we'll talk about this week. It's Jake Pentecost, son of hero stacker Pentecost coming back to lead a new generation of Jaeger pilots, including rival Lambert and a 15-year-old hacker against a new kaiju threat. This is Pacific Rim Uprising. The kaiju. They're going to come back. I'm not going to be stuck waiting for someone else to come save my ass. Cadets, you better gear up. How'd they get into our world? Someone let them in. Someone from our world. Who is that? Definitely not one of ours. Let's do this. Stacker Pentecost. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. He canceled the apocalypse <laughs> and died doing it. That was That's about right. that was five 2013, the original Pacific Rim. And it was Guillermo del Toro and at the time, you know, we've always been Del Toro fans. We were stoked to see it a little bit, but it was, it, I think it disappointed both God of us. God sucked! Okay, it sucked. I hated uh, it. I hated it. <laughs> I thought it was surprisingly boring. Yes. Um, yes, and it's a, Charlie Hunnam is in it, mm -hmm. and you like him a lot, and Idris Elba is in it. Everybody likes him yeah. a lot, and it was just bad. It was but, just predictable and bland and, and, and bad, and Ron Perlman was in it, and he just chewed scenery like he always does. The only thing that was worthwhile about it was the monsters. Well, and that's the original Pacific Rim, right. and the new Pacific Rim is worse. Right. Because uh, at least that original film did have some style and pizzazz. Did. Specifically with the monsters, mm -hmm. they got kind of Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. all tentacles and things. Well, the thing, I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do better in your monsters right. than you are with Del Toro, right? But and that's what made, you know, him being the director, that's what made it so surprising to us that it was such a dud. Yeah. But it is better than this one. This one picks up ten years after the war of the original film. The elder Pentecost died, canceling that apocalypse, and so now it's his son, who's kind of a rogue. You know, he doesn't. He has trouble living up to the to the hero shoes, and he's kind of in trouble with the law. And he gets sent to help train a new generation of young Jaeger pilots, and he's uh, teamed up with his kind of frenemy Nate, played by Scott Eastwood. Jake and Nate. Yeah, Jake and Nate. They're ready to be the new Jaeger pilots, and this one is directed by a newcomer to the big screen, Stephen S. DeKnight. He's done a lot of TV. And it kind of shows here because this has just sophomoric effort written all mm. over it. Everything is just, I mean, the dialogue ranges from cliche to hackneyed to outright terrible. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the blocking, everything is, so, so many times the actors don't move so much as they are posed. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you get inside like the, the barracks of these young pilots, oh my Lord, it's it's so cliched about, you know, coming together, this ragtag bunch, we don't like each yeah. other at first and we're going to fight and then we're going to come together and really form as a team. It's just so, <laughs> you know, below the, so much of it just seems so amateurish mm -hmm. as it tries to set up the conflict before we get 
to these monsters because, of course, they're coming back. Um, they always, they, you know, the military always thought there was a chance, and then a few things happened that I won't go into to accelerate the process mm-hmm. of getting these monsters to come back. But eventually, they do. So the new pilots have to uh, get in gear and take on, get in their Jaegers, and one of them is a little homemade robot that was built by the youngest of these new pilots uh, who's a hacker and she built it out of a scrap so it's called scrapper and at that point i'm just we're just doing pokemon now you know I, that's, they're just coming along if only here if comes only. charmander <laughs> <laughs> and you know y- you suffer through all of it and then you get to the battle like okay most people are going to be here for the robot battles right i mean that's the big draw mm-hmm. here and that is even it's it's so much worse than the original because as you as you just said, at least that part of the original had some sort of style yes, to it. Little flair. This yeah. does not mm. a, at all. Mm. It's just by the numbers. It gets very repetitive, and after a while, kind of the problem that a lot of the Transformers. One of the problems that a lot of the Transformers movies have is that you lose track of who is who. Yeah. With these monsters or the robots or what's going on. And they try to get around that by giving them all names. Mm-hmm. Each of the robots have. Sure, just have, like the Transformers. Exactly. But still, it just gets so repetitive and, and, and confusing, so much so. And I'm not kidding about this. Just down a few seats from me at the screening, a man just fell asleep and was snoring quite loudly. <laughs> so along with the movie, that became quite confusing and repetitive <laughs> after a while. But uh, yeah, he was out, just out, <laughs> even at the loudest part of this movie. So... I mean, it is one, if you're going to, if this is your bag and you are going to go, I would recommend the big screen. You know, they do have the IMAX versions. So if you want to get those comfy chairs, that would be the way to go. It's not overly, overly long. So I'll give it that. You know, a lot of times these movies, they're just going to. Oh my God, the Transformers. You lose the will to live before the end of a Transformers movie. (laughs) They they, must be nine hours long. They end up pouring on such excess. And this one seems to want to set a record for saying the words, save the world. <laughs> you know, remember in um, San Andreas when The Rock and Carlo Gugino kept saying, let's go get our daughter over and over again. <laughs> okay, we get it. This is save the world over and over again until they have to save the world. So, you know, if you're just a diehard fan of this franchise, okay. But I, I even compared to the first one, it's just so amateurish yeah. and and boring and cliched and uh not good no pacific rim uprising but the good news is we got the bad news out of the way the That's rest right. of the new releases this week are good so let's move to the story of a young woman who is involuntarily committed to a mental institution where she is confronted by her greatest fear but is it real or a product of her delusions steven soderbergh's latest unsane rationally i know this is my imagination but i'm alone in a strange city and i never feel safe there's some more forms you need to fill out it's just routine sawyer valentini please follow me well look i i don't have a lot of time i, I should be back at work so what am i doing in here take off your clothes down to your underwear i'm not sure what's happening here the door's locked It would be better for everyone, especially yourself, if you just do as I ask. There's been some kind of mistake. By signing this, you've consented to voluntary commitment. I am being held here against my will. My stalker is here. We did a thorough background check. You should be protecting me. Mom, no one believes me. I'm getting you out. There's nothing we can do unless you have proof that a crime's been committed. (laughs) 
I got to tell you right now, as soon as I saw this trailer, this, this is just a, <laughs> this is a secret fear of mine. And I anytime know. I see a movie where something like this happens, I just get all anxious. Right. So he's really picking my scab Right, here. he is. And I he, bet it's not just me. No, no, I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it isn't. And it is actually, it's a little bit, especially for anybody who watches as much horror as we do, it's a little bit of a uh, well-worn Kind of a storyline where, you know, it's like, so somebody is being committed against their will. So are they or aren't they? Are they crazy or aren't they crazy? Because maybe, you know, they can't get out because somebody knows better and they should be committed. Or maybe there really is nothing wrong with them, but nobody will believe them because they think they're crazy. Yeah, it's It's, been used in a lot of movies to varying degrees of success. Sometimes it becomes just a little bit too convenient and cheeky, but not here. No, actually, uh, Soderbergh, he's an interesting filmmaker because every once in a while you'll have like one of your slick, you know, high profile, big budget Ocean's Ocean's Eleven kind of a movies. But mainly what he puts out are, you know, mid to low budget movies where he's really experimenting with one thing or another. Yes, that's the key word. I think he really likes to experiment with the form and also with ways of distributing. He has done movies like straight to straight to on demand before. So he's always experimenting. And in this case, he films he films the entire thing on iPhones. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen that done successfully elsewhere. Yeah. Tangerine, we mm-hmm. both love the film Tangerine. Uh, it's interesting to see such a major filmmaker decide to do that. But it's not exactly a gimmick either because it does a nice job of capturing... It puts you in her headspace, mm-hmm. right? Because the point is that even she recognizes she's not entirely right. So she has a stalker. And, and it's the actress is Claire Foy. Claire Foy from The Crown. Yeah, who's just she's been winning a bunch of awards. Yes. We, we haven't watched it, of course, because no, it's, on it's TV. a TV. <laughs> <laughs> but she's apparently very good in that, as she's good here. She is good in this, and she and one of the things I like about her is that is that her character Sawyer is not likable, and I I always admire that when when you know because you know what why would she bother to try to be likable right now she's got a lot of shit going on you right. know and I and I. I appreciate when people just accept that, embrace that. She's kind of a brittle figure. So anyway, she's she's moved a few hundred miles away from her hometown of Boston because of a stalker. She hasn't let anybody else, her family or anybody really know about this, but she's got a new life. And the thing is, the problem is that she just, she keeps thinking she sees him places. Mm-hmm. So she she goes to a clinic that where she can do like a walk-in appointment with a therapist. And the therapist, you know, uh, asks her a lot of questions. She thanks her for being a you know good listener. She fills out some paperwork, but the therapist has, asked her at one point if she ever thought about killing herself. Mm. Well, that lets the therapist refer to her in a diagnosis as uh, a danger to herself and or others. Right. So the next thing she knows, quite against she her will, leave. she's being committed. Well, then she thinks she sees her stalker. She, she throws a punch, and the next thing you know, it's not 24 hours, it's suddenly a week. So what he does, what Soderbergh does really brilliantly here, is expose some genuinely terrifying things about privatized healthcare mm-hmm. by using a very s- sort of uh, familiar formula, but a formula that works if it's done well because it's a scary idea that you're in there and you should be out and you can't get out. And is she or isn't she? They do. It's, it's executed really well because the next thing you know, she's stuck in there for at least a week and she's convinced that one of the orderlies is her stalker. And it's not just. Healthcare is more specifically mental health care, right? Yes, Which is, privatized mental health care, yes. been up in the news a lot lately. Yes. Um, so it's, it plays on that. And it also plays, really, it's also very timely from the stalker angle because that plays into the rise of the Me Too movement. It's how yes. a, a woman is being treated and how 
society reacts to that. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that they do really well, and Claire Foy in particular, you know, uh, because it's not simply that, you know, a person who doesn't want to be in this situation is in this situation against their will. It is a woman who has gone to great lengths to be able to control her own life, right. who is once again forced to do something she doesn't want because of the will of somebody else. So right. he, he does this great, he does a great job. I mean, there are so many layers. It's a very brisk running time, not even 90 minutes. And again, it, it, especially because of the way it's filmed, this sort of shallow, weird style, sort of hypersaturated color style of it. I think you may almost miss how much he's saying. Uh, but that, I think, is how you can tell the skill of a filmmaker, yeah. is that he is taking something that, you know, you've seen something like this before, but he's kind of filling it to brimming with a lot of really relevant ideas that haven't necessarily been tapped in this way before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's it falls into what you said before, that he's always he's a filmmaker that's always experimenting, yep. always pushing, and that's why he's always one to... To keep your interest, Absolutely. to always want to know what 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 is he up to this time, and you know it doesn't always work, right? But but uh, you know, uh, God love him for trying all the yeah. time, for not just being complacent or comfortable and trying something new every time. But it seems like here he's got a winner on on two fronts: what what he's saying in a social context and also just a nice little thriller yes yeah. absolutely so, so yeah it works quite well as a thriller works on both both fronts so that's unsane steven soderbergh's latest got something for your funny bone next up it follows a soviet dictator's last days and depicts the chaos of the regime after his death it's the death of stalin stalin's dead he's dead stalin is dead oh my god our general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity yeah, he's feeling unwell Clearly. We need change. Well, if you can mobilize first. Oh, seems to be me. We have to act. I really need your help. I'm going to have to report this conversation. Threatening to do harm or obstruct any member of the Presidium in the process of looking at your face. (laughs) You know, all of you can kiss my Russian ass. Well, if you couldn't tell by that trailer, this film is hilarious. <laughs> I, I love this film so much. Uh, it's the latest by uh, co-writer and director Armando Iannucci, who you might know from the TV show Veep, which we don't watch regularly again. Because we have it's on seen TV, it, though. But we've seen it, and, and I've loved it. And also in the it. loop. And in the loop. And so this just cements him as a premier satirist. And political satirist in particular. Political satirist in particular, yeah. And... You know, good satire, satire this effective. First of all, I love you it. You love it so love much. It. It's so hard to do. Yeah. Because it can be so embarrassing when somebody's trying satire or thinks that they're satirizing. No, right. no, you're not. No. This is so right on and is such is such a joy from start to finish. The way it's written, the the dialogue, I mean the the dry, deadpan jokes just come fast and furious. Boom, boom. They just come <laughs> while craziness is going on in the background. You know, all these all these different players are jockeying for power after the death of Stalin. And let's go back. Okay, it's set in 19, 1950s Russia. And all of the actors are either British or American, and none of them are even attempting a Russian accent, which is... <laughs> which is funny in itself. It's so funny. It's, <laughs> right away, it sets you off on this off-kilter vibe. Like, is that Steve Buscemi playing Nikita Khrushchev? <laughs> yes, it is. And what's the problem? Let's move on. <laughs> So that's what you're set up with. He's actually one of the few Americans. Most of them are British actors. And they're all, I mean, from the lead, you know, you've got not only Bushima, you've got 
uh, Jason Isaacs, who nearly steals the show as the head of the Russian army. Uh, you've got Jeffrey Tambor is in there. And from the leads right on down to the smallest bit player, everyone is just impeccable in delivering these lines. And then you've got these constant wave of assassinations that are going on just out of frame or maybe, oh, you heard another one because the, <laughs> the enemies list is constantly being updated. And it's it just continues to build on on this premise as all these different members of the Central Committee are trying to, you know, come come into power. And it's actually that's the funny. It's actually loosely based on, you know, a real period in history <laughs> that is brutal and bloody. But you're laughing through it. And not only that, you're he's taking he's just making such savage mockery of people in power today. today. And the way it's done is just so brilliant. You, you're not only laughing but you're appreciating every single moment of it because it's so great to see a talent like this is still out there and able to make it look so easy, not only the writing, but the performers mm -hmm. together, make it look so effortless when you know it is so hard yeah. to do. But I'll tell you what, I thought it was just, just a scream and couldn't recommend the death of Stalin uh, more. Because, and also, it's worth noting that Michael Palin from Monty Python yeah, yeah, yeah. is one of the cast members as well, which really fits because there are a few classic bits, mainly to do with physical comedy, that really recall, for me, some of the best of Monty Python's zaniness. There was a, there's a bit at, at Stalin's funeral where <laughs> Steve Buscemi's character and Jeffrey Tambor's character are trying to slyly switch places in the reception line, and it's it, there's no word spoken, and it's a scream. <laughs> so things like that. I mean, everything about it, it was just one of the funniest films and best satires, political satires, uh, that I've seen in years, and it's The Death of Stalin. Well, it's a good thing we laughed before talking about this next one because uh, this one is deadly serious and very effective. It's a couple going through a divorce, teaming up to find their son who has disappeared during one of their bitter arguments. It's in limited release this week, but it was Oscar-nominated last year for Best Foreign Film, and it's called Loveless. Man, this movie is heartbreaking, but it's incredibly well done. It is. I think it's not what you're expecting. I mean, I know I wasn't expecting it. Uh, right, me too. It, um, uh, you know, the two main characters are, they're going through a divorce. You don't side with either of them. They're both basically self-involved narcissists of their own making yeah. uh, in very different ways, but neither one of them is is the kind of lead character that you're prepared for. Right. We meet them as they're, they're trying to sell their apartment mm -hmm. because they both have gone on to new relationships and they're showing the apartment to uh, some prospective tenants and they're paying zero attention to their young son. Their 12-year-old boy, There's Alexi. a shot of him and it's in the trailer and I see it now, it all makes you want to weep. It I mean, does. It just, it just grabs your heart and twists it because they're totally ignoring this boy so much so that it takes them a good bit of time days later to realize he has not come home. Right. Because the, cause the fact is, you know, they, they've been in this marriage, this this really very loveless marriage for a long time now. The two have nothing but animosity for each other. And the two each has found what they have convinced themselves to be the dream future. Right. And neither of them is willing to take the son with them to their dreamy future. Mm -hmm. And he knows it. Yep. And yeah, they're so determined in their selfishness that it does take them at least a full day to realize that he's at home. Uh, and then 
the search begins. But, uh, you know, the, the point of the film really is never whether they find the child or whether they don't or even entirely what's happened to the child. I mean, it's there's a lot of Russian metaphor happening in this film. Oh, very much so. It's uh, in fact sometimes I think that's to the detriment of the film to a certain degree. It this gets one, a little heavy-handed. Yeah, this uh, director co-writer Audrey Zvagnestev, and I probably butchered that, and I'm sorry. Yeah, his work tends to be a comment. He's commenting on his homeland, yes. the society of his homeland, Russia. This one is a little bit more heavy-handed than, mm-hmm. say, Leviathan. Oh, which, which we loved. Yeah. Oh, my God, loved Leviathan. But it's very clear that he's commenting on the self-centeredness of a generation of Russian people yeah. that he sees. Yeah. Because aside from the boy and a few other, case in point, the social worker yes. that tries to help out and find the boy, all the adults are incredibly self-absorbed. Yeah. That is very clear. In fact, like you mentioned, maybe a little too much. Yeah. It, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't derail the film, but no, it is a no, little heavy. Because I mean, the truth, and it is not in the performances because because they are very believable and ugly. They're just you know you mm-hmm. you just want to shake these people, but it's not as if they're it's not lampooning anything. They're not. They are, in fact the performances are not heavy handed. It's I think more in sort of asides or news footage or you know some other yeah. ways directorially where for me i think he gets a little bit heavy with his with his metaphors but the performances are stunning they are so is the look of the film i mean this is an unhurried picture oh yeah and he there is so much in the frame of of like dilapidated buildings and then sort of this beautiful nature mm-hmm. and sort of those metaphors work much better i think so because too they're much more subtle yeah but it's it's like we said. It's not a happy, happy film at no, all. No, it's an it's amazing not, movie. It's an amazing movie. It yeah. really is. But yeah, it's it, it'll leave it's you hollow go. and haunted. It definitely will. But it's it's some good filmmaking, and that is loveless. Moving on to home video, Blu-ray releases, DVD. It's led by big box office smash, Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle. And this one, I enjoyed a lot, and it's mainly to do with the cast because obviously it's an update years later of the of the Jumanji film, and this one has The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Jack Black, Jack Black, Karen Gillan, Mm -hmm. and they are the avatars. They get sucked into the game because the game has has morphed in the years since the original into a video cartridge. Mm -hmm. So it starts out as kind of a breakfast clubby thing, and these kids are playing it in detention, and they get get, uh, sucked in. And their avatars, of course, are the direct opposite of their real selves. And the real fun is had in watching this cast deal with the fact that they're actually kids, mm-hmm. and now they have these bodies. And Jack so, Black, for example, yeah. is actually a hot high school girl. Right, and she can't deal with that. And, of course, The, the Rock, his his real boy, is a scrawny, you know, very uh, not confident <laughs> kid, and now all of a sudden he's huge. Yeah, and Kevin Hart is, is the huge kid, is the jock, yeah. and now he doesn't know what to do with his tiny little Kevin Hart body. Exactly, so that's where the fun is. The actual adventure is... It's fine, but it, but it's not maybe the greatest. But uh, the fun is in this cast and how they interact. So I definitely think we'll be seeing another one after the bucks that it well, made. Well, it's a thing. You know a movie is a smash hit when it's still running first-run theaters yeah. and it's available on, down, on Blu-ray and, yeah. and, and, uh, just, and streaming. It's just a lot of fun. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, one that uh, I liked whew, better than a lot of people, yeah. Downsizing. Yeah. That's the latest from Alexander Payne. Yes. Who, who's... Now, for an Alexander Payne film, it's it's one of his lesser efforts. It is. I think in a lot of ways he bit off more than he can chew with this because he has a hard time, I think, with the absurd comedy uh, and he can't balance it out with what sometimes feels like spoon feeding of a political point of view. But the performances are great. Yep. 
And, yep. and a lot of it is, I mean, it's very smart, and a couple of scenes are utterly perfect. Yeah, it's really high concept about the, the, the chance to shrink yourself and get a new life by, you know, using so much less that you don't need as much into this new life, and a lot of people take advantage of it. And then, of course, you know, human potential uh, meets up with human nature, and some of the same problems in the quote-unquote real world starts happening in the small world. And and uh, yeah, I think a lot of times it does work. It does have some some sharp social commentary and kind of an absurdist nature. But then it does run into a few problems toward the end. But boy, I I, I saw a lot of just savage reviews of this yeah. movie. I couldn't could not agree with. No, uh, no. it's not great. Not up there with Sideways no, or no. Um, Nebraska oh, my. or Election even. Yeah. So, although this is mostly for sure the most political I think that Alexander Payne has gotten since Election. But uh, it doesn't work that well. But I still thought it was it was worthwhile. And uh, finally, on DVD Home Entertainment this week, Pitch Perfect Three, which no. will probably be the last Pitch Perfect. I uh, yes, I would think so. And uh, you know, if you love the Pitch Perfect movies, and you know, you're just going to sit in your house and wallow, that's fine. But I, I don't <laughs> think that this one really even has a charm for those people who are passionate about the franchise. It does, you know, it's got some welcome faces. You know, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the songs are pretty lackluster. The storyline is completely ludicrous. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's, run it's its course. more than run its course. Yeah. yeah, more than run its course. Looking forward to a big one next week. Ready Player One. Steven Spielberg's latest is coming out, getting a lot of buzz. We were interested right away because it's set in Columbus, Ohio, yeah. which is where we are. A well-loved book by many. Mm. And we'll see how Spielberg does with that. So that's the big one next week. Also a smaller film that's getting a lot of buzz mainly for the performance of Zoe Deutsch mm-hmm. and it's called Flower so we'll look at that one as well so until then let us know what you thought about Pacific Rim or Unsane any of these that we talked about hit us up on Twitter that's the easiest way you can find us at Mad Wolf M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F we're on Facebook and Instagram Mad Wolf Columbus and also the main website you can find our written reviews and our other podcast which is Fright Club and you can find all that at madwolf.com. So until next week, the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and Marcus Crosswoods Theater. I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.